You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The city was a puzzle box built of symbols, a confusion of old and new, armored cars and donkeys in the streets, Bedouins and bankers. The Turks and Haredim, the showy Greek and Russian processions, everyone seemed to be in costume, reenacting the miraculous past. The very stones were second-hand, scavenged and fit back into place haphazardly, their Roman inscriptions inverted. It was the rainy season, and the walls were gray instead of golden, the souks teeming with rats. An east wind thrashed the poplars and olive trees, stirring up trash in cul-de-sacs, rattling windows. He'd lost too much weight during the war and couldn't get warm. When he ran out of kerosene, his contact Asher brought him a jerry can liberated from their masters. Nightly, the streetlights flickered and the power went out. His flop off the station road overlooked the Armenian cemetery where the horrors took the soldiers after the bars closed, their electric torches weaving between the crypts. The rain fell on the domes and bell towers and minarets, filling the ancient cisterns beneath the old city, fell on Mount Scopus and the Mount of Olives and the desert beyond, thunder cracking over the Dead Sea. The dankness reminded Brand of his grandmother's root cellar. As a boy, he was afraid the door at the top of the rough stairs would swing closed of its own weight, the latch catching, leaving him in darkness. Now he imagined her hiding there, dirty-cheeked, surviving on jarred beets and horseradish. But of course, she couldn't be. The house, the town, the entire country was gone. Stuart Onan is the author of novels including Snow Angels. A Prayer for the Dying, The Night Country, Last Night at the Lobster, Songs for the Missing, and West of Sunset. His new novel is City of Secrets. Thank you for joining me, Stuart. Thanks, Rick. When I read this book, I was about a third of the way into it, and I started to think this is really the spiritual successor to the movie Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope there's a you know a hint of romance there and the hint of the illicit. You know this 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 Jerusalem of the 1945-46 is kind of it's an in between place. Right right at the time it's 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 not the center of the world the way it is nowadays. Um, in fact, in, in that time period, it was seen as sort of a backwater, a very dull town. I, as I read this book, I realized quickly that Jerusalem in those years was almost inverted from the way it was now, the situation, the political situation. So uh, you had to go about creating a Jerusalem that's very different uh, then from the one that is now. How much was it physically different? I mean, how what, what new stuff has happened? Did you go to Jerusalem to write this book? I, I didn't go there because, uh, like the Los Angeles of 1937 and West of Sunset, <laughs> that Los Angeles no longer exists. There may be small pockets uh, of existing buildings, but for the most part, the development has been so huge and the city has grown so much that pretty much uh, most of it's gone. There are parts of the old city that are that are still somewhat the same, but even the, the old Jewish quarter was uh, dynamited uh, after the the war in 1948, um, and then after 67, when the Israelis took back the whole city, you know, the slums over by the Western Wall were, were bulldozed. Um, so it was it was a, a matter of finding contemporary sources 
from 45 and 46, and going back and looking at those maps, and looking at, at travel logs and um, the, the diaries of people that, that went there specifically to fight uh, in the insurgency against the British mandate. Okay, right there you said something that is really fascinating, the mandate. Uh, tell us a little bit about the mandate Jerusalem and what the political situation of the city was, because as much as we might like to think we know all this stuff, it's nice to to be immersed in it, which you do in our, the book, which is a really wonderful thing. You just throw us into this place, and we're right there, and it seems so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> well, to our main character, Brand, it is, because he's a greenhorn. He's a mm-hmm. new guy. and he's, he's survived the death camps, and he's come here illegally and is now working under an assumed name and driving a taxi through the city, but he doesn't know the city at all. He doesn't know the people. He doesn't know the lay of the land politically. It all stems from the British in being victorious in World War One. They took over all of the lands of the Ottoman Turks. Um, and so part of those lands was Palestine. Um, and the British took it over in 1918, and they administered what they called a mandate. They basically ran the government and all administrative services for the country there. And during this time, there was that question of Zionism, of, you know, will there be a Jewish homeland? And I, there were many, many different organizations worldwide that were looking at Palestine as a Jewish homeland at that time. Um, but the numbers weren't quite adding up in terms of how many Jews were there versus how many Arabs versus the British plans for the area. Um, and so it became very, very contested between the three groups. Um, and, and, and looking back on it, it seems one of Britain's last gasps of colonialism there, but one that they didn't really want, right? They, they, they wanted to sort of get out of there as, as, as painlessly as they could. Um, and the insurgency helped them get out of there. Okay, we hear a lot about insurgency today, and it has one kind of meaning. It's very different from the insurgency you're talking about. What was that insurgency, and what were their goals, and who who were they, and who are they trying to get rid of? And yeah, and that's exactly what Brand is trying to figure out. At the time that he he goes in there, um, he is working for the Haganah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was a very large political and grassroots organization that included, some estimates say, up to 60 percent uh, of the Jewish population of Palestine at that time. So everybody was kind of part of it. Everybody knew people. So they could hide arms. They could hide people. Um, they could welcome in the new people who were illegal, according to British law there. Um, and they were a rather mild and politically based uh, group. I mean, they, they could mount defensive um, actions to sort of protect people, but they didn't go out and really look for as much trouble as the Irgun, uh, which was led by Menachem Begin, who later became prime minister. And they were a very tactical uh, military outfit, a paramilitary outfit that would fight the British and hit what they considered hard targets. They would uh, break into armories and get guns. Um, that, that was Weaponry was a real problem with, with the uh, the, the revolution at that time, the underground, they didn't have enough weapons. And so they would try to get them from the British army bases there. And, and the, the Irgun was very good at that, very good. Um, and then you had the Stern Gang, which even the other two groups were like, those guys are crazy. They were just straight out terrorists. They were just there to, to, to wreak violence and cause trouble and make the British sort of rethink why they were there and what price they were willing to pay to continue to rule the land. I... I mentioned earlier that how immersive this novel is, and I think that that's one of its you know really great strengths is you just 
drop us in there with brand. Talk about creating brand and your decision to make him be an escapee from the camps hit and as and revealing his backstory, which is, I think, a nice part of the plot of this book is getting to know the characters, who they are, because everybody's living under an assumed identity. We kind of watch them play out the assumed identities and we learn slowly through their behavior and through the, their confessions, what their real identities are. And they're trying to create their new identity or to, or to regain the identity that they've lost mm-hmm. and, and all that they've lost during the Second World War. And what fascinated me about the, the, the Irgun especially is that so many people that were involved with them are people that survived the camps. Somehow they'd survived being victims of political violence. And within months, they turned around and became perpetrators of political violence um, for their own ends. And so that question of means and ends and how do you go from being a victim to becoming a superior or, or, or to be an, an attacking force. And the further and further I got into it, the more I realized, how could they not? They were never going to be victims again. They were never going to let that happen again. They would do anything that they could do to, to avoid that. There. And they were also fighting for a homeland because the land that they were from was gone. They were not going back there. It was never going to happen. So that's why I started with Brand as being someone who's lost everything. He's lost his entire family. He's lost the country he's come from. Uh, He has no friends. He's a complete free agent. Um, But but he knows he's drawn somehow to Jerusalem and knowing that that his people are there. And what he feels he has to do for his people drives him. I, I like the tension between Brand's loyalty to the memories of his family and his uh, loyalty to the people who are in his life at this moment, uh, including Eva. And I think you play that out so beautifully, this combination of guilt and desire and longing and nostalgia. The, the way This is a book that is super gray. <laughs> well, he's, he's torn, as many people were at the time, many, many immigrants who came from the war and they come to Israel. And a lot of the people that were born in Israel, the Sabras, were saying, you know, you have to put that, that history of defeat behind you. You have to be strong and forget all of that and come with us and join us and make this new world and become this new person, the new Jew. That was, that was one of the sort of the, the lines that was always running around Jerusalem at the time. And for someone like Brand... All he has is the past. All he has is those memories. Now, there's just nothing else. He's got nothing else to work with. How does he become a new person? Um, and that, that's really the, the strength. And, and telling him to forget the past is impossible for him. And he tries. He tries as hard as he possibly can to turn over this new thing, to become this, this, this man that they say he is with his new identity card and his new job and this new everything. But the past keeps sort of dragging him back. And he knows it's not good. He knows it's not healthy to try to live in the past there. So he tries to live in both at the same time, and it, it, it tears him apart. Well, and this is true, too, of the city because, and I think this is a really interesting observation. You say the city was a puzzle box built of symbols, a confusion of the old and new, armored cars and donkeys in the streets, Bedouins and bankers. This is the way our world is built. We always like to think that there's the present and somewhere there'll be the future and it's all shiny and new and there's all these great skyscrapers and it just kind of appears and wipes out the present. But any present is always 
which is the future of the past, is always built on the past. You can never get rid of the past. Especially in a place like Jerusalem. And of course, because it's, it's right after the war, they're on the cusp of this 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 collision of East and West there. Mm. And you're already seeing it. You know, the people that are coming in, the survivors of Western Europe are coming in. So there's people from Vienna and they're trying to recreate a Viennese coffee shop, you know, <laughs> there, there in the western suburbs of, of Jerusalem. And so there's this great, great confusion and this, this, this huge melting pot there. And the question is, what is going to happen? It's all up in the air. And that, that seemed to me a really interesting and dangerous and, and um, dire place, I think. And it, it reminded me of, of Graham Greene's novels, which are basically about you know, the, the fall of the colonial the British Empire and and what what those people in the empire then could do at the end of it. They didn't know what to do with themselves. Well, this is that's very interesting. You've just kind of taken one step past Graham Greene, but you have <laughs> all of his. I think the the strengths of his novels are all present here in terms of having characters who are conflicted with themselves, characters who have conflicts with other people. Uh, Brand's uh, feelings for Eva are so beautifully rendered and they are, are so self-contradictory and Eva herself is just this bundle of contradictions. I think one of the important aspects of this book is to point out that we are all made up of things that really shouldn't be together. Yeah, and, and the mysteriousness of why we desire what we, what is not good for us uh, <laughs> often. Um, and that comes through in Graham Greene as well. Uh, but but like Greene, I, I think it's, it's, a book about, um, it's a book about faith and identity and um, and morals, really, you know, the means and ends and what means are going to use to get what ends that you need to get to. When we meet Brand, he's a, a kind of a spy in a sense. And I think that this idea of the spy, you do a good job of liberating that from whatever our preconceptions of it are and making it very uh, down and dirty. I mean, this is a really gritty book. And so it takes, I, I, I'm, I feel like it has a big chunk of noir DNA oh, yeah. running through it. Oh, yeah. And that, it shares that, I, I think, with West of Sunset. All the Chandler, all the Chandler that I've been reading uh, <laughs> fell into that. And Marlowe, of course. And, and the idea of, of Philip Marlowe, the detective, being this, this man who wants to remain moral in an amoral world. And Brand desperately wants to hang on to that. He wants it to be that moral man that he once was. Uh, of course, it's impossible for him to hang on to. But, of course, it is, it's also about, you know, just... Street-level operatives. You know, what do you see on the street? How do you pass this information along? And then what do people do with that information? Because you're down there, you're at the very bottom of the food chain. You don't know what they're going to do with that information higher up there. And as the book goes on, Brand gets in deeper and deeper and deeper until he's he's in too deep. Uh, and like Marlowe, who is often the patsy in those novels, what then happens is is much larger than him. I think that one of the things I've found really interesting are all the fascinating details you put into this about how they created the different cells and how they operated. How did you find, where did you learn about this? And having learned about it from the outside is one thing you can go and read a book about it. But then how did you put yourself on the inside looking out at these events? Well, first it was that that, that collision of the three different 
splinter sects. They're the splinter groups mm-hmm. um, that decided we're going to work together, all together. And of course, they, before this, they were completely at odds. In fact, they were at war with each other. Um, and now they decide, okay, we're going to join up. Now, what does that do? You know, when, when the Bloods and the Crips suddenly get together and say, <laughs> okay, we're going to join up and we're going to fight this one foe. I mean, th- those old lingering resentments and rivalries are still there. Um, and Brand has to somehow navigate those and, and try to understand who really is from his original cell of the Haganah and who is, in fact, Irgun and who might be with the Stern Gang. He doesn't know. He's a greenhorn. Um, and, and getting into that, I think I did sort of fall back on, on the detective fiction of, of Chandler um, and Hammett and people like that who— they're getting little bits and pieces, but they can't see the whole picture there. And the further they go into it, you know, as the reader, that they're just in too deep. Now, uh, the in some of the specifics of the cells, did you, like, pull that out of historical documents? I mean, where did you find that kind of information? Because it feels super real and super well, immediate. There are a lot of really wonderful memoirs written by people who had been in these different groups. Mm. Um, there's uh, Days of Fire by Samuel Katz. Um, of course, Begin's own autobiography, Revolt, a uh, really, really important book. Um, and there are others like Letters from Jerusalem uh, by a woman named Zipporah. can't remember her last name there. But this is a woman who was 18 years old and in Brooklyn decided, I'm going to go fight for Israel, and just goes over and joins up with you know a youth group in the Haganah and suddenly is deeply involved with smuggling arms you know, and in hiding people who are part of, you know, this political violence. And and that idea of being sort of under the radar and trying to hide everything and always being in a false position, right? You, you've got a fake name, you know, you have fake papers, you have a fake job, and everyone that you're talking to, you're lying to. Um, that seemed to me a fascinating position for a character to be in. Chekhov says, look for a character in a false position. Well, Brand is in the most false position of all, and he's sort of, in inside, he's sort of crying out and saying, I need help. I don't know what's happening to me. But outside, he has to be the sort of smooth operator, sort of pulling this con on everybody. I think that um, the way that uh, you put us inside Brand's head is really interesting. When you are, like, writing this uh, closely observed third person, and I got that right? Definitely. Um, Do you sometimes find yourself, like, uh, wondering... Does how much of this bleeds through to your own life? I, is there kind of like some blowback when you're immersing yourself in characters who are just doing them, you know, on the edge of really heinous deeds and coming from a really terrible past? But also trying to figure out what he needs to do to be a good person. Mm-hmm. You know, he catalogs his own sins more than anybody else does. Oh, yeah. He holds himself to a higher standard there. Um, I think in dealing with any character, Scott Fitzgerald said, what I need for a character is an emotion that I understand. Mm. And the emotion I understand about Brand is someone trying to do his very best in an impossible situation. And I think we, I think we all know that, you know, from our, our family lives and from, you know, just our, our, our daily lives and in a larger sense, our political lives. You know, some things aren't going to end well, and, but you have to simply <laughs> do your very best and get through them somehow. I think that uh, that that's a powerful statement. Some things are don't are not they're going just, to end. Yeah, just not going to end. How do, how do you remain a decent person mm-hmm. there? Um, in, in the one sense, Prayer for the Dying was a book about how do you remain a decent and moral person when you are the bringer of law and the bringer of the word, right? Um, how do you govern and remain a good person in a time of total crisis? In this, it's the opposite: is how do you then seize that power? 
that you feel that you and your people deserve? How do you how do you take that self-determination from an oppressor and still remain a moral person? So again, that there's means and ends there. And the question is how do we, how do we remain good in our dealings with the world? For all the wonderful kind of moral ambiguity in this book, it's also an intense uh, page-turning thriller, and you have these wonderful set pieces. Uh, there's a, a train robbery that is almost like out of uh, the Wild West, but it's not. And out in the desert, yeah. yeah, yeah very strange. It's, it's really weird. Did that happen, or, or did something like that happen? Or? Yeah, yeah, many, many things happen like that, uh-huh. because, because the British were reliant on their rail system then for supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there, I mean, there were lots of, of very strange and interesting you know, actions that the different cells took. And and from those, I sort of, you know, I cherry-picked and chose the ones I thought would reveal the character of Bran the most. It's not, So you had a, a, a series of kind of uh, actions, uh, set pieces, for for example, and then you orchestrated those to, to bring out the character? Oh, yeah, because I, I think with each one, you're ratcheting up the tension a little mm-hmm. bit higher and a little bit higher. And Bran's complicity in the violence is more and more and more. And during the uh, the train robbery, of course, this is the first time that he actually picks up a weapon. Because mm-hmm. weapons are so scarce, they don't sort of hand them out. And if you're caught with a weapon, you can be hanged. Uh, you can be sentenced to death simply for having a weapon that might be used against the British. Um, so it's very, very careful. Now, he's smuggled these weapons before, but he's never actually, you know, wielded one. Uh, and then the, the, as the train robbery occurs, he has to pick one up and, and become, you know, you know, the bringer of power, the bringer of oppression against other people. And it's very difficult for him. I really like the way that you kind of, you were talking about ratcheting up the, uh, the it's interesting, you ratchet up the level of responsibility and I think that, uh, for things that are increasingly worse, harder to deal with, and that's a really fascinating way to deal with the Responsibility and consequence, mm. because then he's got to pay, you know, he's got to pay the bill after he does what he does um, in, in, in each case now, and, and live with it. Uh, talk about uh, creating Eva, who's such an interesting character. Did you um, find people like her in the historical literature? There, there are people like her in the historical literature, but, but even before I knew that, I kind of came to her just on the page as I was writing, writing my way into the book. I realized this was the person that, that Brand would fall for. Um, this, in some sense, a very soulful person, but also in, in another sense, a kind of a, a false person. We don't know who she is. Brand doesn't know. Nobody knows who she is at all. She's an actress. Mm. Um, and, and as with Fitzgerald in West of Sunset, you know, with, with Sheila Graham not being who Scott thinks she is, um, Ava is not who Brand thinks she is at all. Um, and yet he is utterly smitten with her. He is in this, this the, the throes of romantic love in this very romantic and dangerous place. Uh, again, the Casablanca uh, kind of allusion to it. Um, it, it, I think it is a true love affair, and yet he's held back by his memories, completely held back by his memories, and wanting to be true to the person that he once was, um, this person who was good and strong and moral and undamaged. But that person, of course, in this fallen world of noir, is gone, and he has to sort of hold on to what he thinks might be good, and he's not sure. I like this. I never thought about this, as, but it is really, it's a World War II noir. 
I mean, it's a time the, period. Yeah, it's a t- and that's that's why we have this this music that's being broadcast from Radio Cairo, of all places. And it's <laughs> in this American music that's actually taking place in ballrooms in America, and they're broadcasting out into the world. And so again, the world is sort of encroaching on this very small place at the time, Jerusalem. You know, in his room on his radio. You know, these these very very little things, or his bottle of Johnny Walker <laughs> there. You know, which of course is made in Scotland, which is part of the British Empire. You know, but he takes solace in this thing. It's yeah, so the whole world is coming here to do something. We don't know exactly what it is, and he's in the midst of it. And he doesn't know exactly what he's doing. So there's this great confusion, which seemed to me, again, Graham Greene territory um, or Casablanca. Yeah, and I, I think that, too, by making him, uh, you know, you emphasize the idea that, you know, the Jews, they never could feel safe again. No, no of course not. No, not at all. Um, and, and the natural reaction is to, you know, ensure that we'll be safe by, by making this ours, by making this our place. You know, Brand carries along a, a lot of illusions. And, and could you talk about creating his kind of illusions and why he needs them? Um, the, the illusion is that he can be the person that he once was again. Um, when he was in the camps, he survived by not making any trouble. He survived by sort of standing aside and watching you know, other people do terrible things to his, his fellow man. And that's how he got through. Um, and he was, in, he was in the camps for something like five years. I mean, he was, he was picked up by the Russians first and then the Germans and then the Russians again. So that was his survival strategy. But it's made him hate himself. Uh, it's turned him into a person that stands by and watches. And he's decided that I'm going to change. And you can't. You can't do that. You can't suddenly say, oh, I'm going to change now and actually do it. And and what he goes through trying to become the man that he once was and the sort of the, the, the inner pain that he goes through is is considerable. Uh, and I also, too, I love the sense of innocence and not innocence and guilt throughout this book. It's so wonderful and powerful. Well, he's I mean, he's naturally tortured. I mean, uh, everybody that he loved was killed. Um, while he was unable to help whatsoever, and he survives. The healthy, strong male of the family survives what everybody else is killed. Um, and and he, sort of, he carries that family with him, and he carries those, those days of innocence with him, and he wants to believe in them. So they're always coming back to him, his, his days with his wife, Katya, you know, his days as a child with his sister. And that's why we have the, the, the Passover sequence there, mm-hmm. um, where, where he tries to recreate in his mind this, this wonderful Passover that they had years and years ago. But, of course, that's all gone. Everything's gone. Everything is gone. And what do you do when everything is gone? How does that change you? Um, and I think it's changed Brand, and, 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 and I think Brand knows this, it's changed him in a terrible, terrible way. And so he feels he has to somehow reclaim himself. He's got to come back. Uh, and, and weirdly enough, that's the same thing that happened with Fitzgerald in West of Sunset. Mm-hmm. He's hit absolute rock, rock bottom. Um, and he's, he's become this false person. And he has to get back to who he is, who he really is, if that's possible. Is it possible? You know, and, and for us as adults, right, is that possible? Can we ever reclaim the past? Can we ever redeem the past um, no matter what we do? And if we do try to do it in an active way, what are some of the terrible things that might happen to us? Generally, things we do ourselves and choose to do. Yeah, yeah. So it's about agency. It's about, you know, moral agency, which is, you know, it's a heavy, heavy duty stuff to talk about in the midst of this presidential campaign and, you know, the state of the world right now. But of course, there's revolutions going on 
all around the globe right now. And, uh, and there always will be. It's a natural state of, of mankind. And that brings me to another aspect of this book. Reading this book was so wonderful because there's such a sense of dissonance that it sets up in the reader. We're immersed in our own world where Jerusalem is one thing and Israelis are one thing and the Holocaust is one thing and the Palestinians are one thing. And we have all those things are just like bombarded into our psyches every day. It's like they're rocks. So to have those rocks just like completely rearranged like in that sequence in Inception where the city kind of rolls <laughs> up on itself. It's like that's what you do in this book in seconds in the first paragraph. As you well, it, take comes, a, it comes alive. Yeah. It's no longer this this long, old, forgotten history. It's happening right now. It's happening to this man, and we're following him, and we're hoping for him, and we're caring for him, and we're fearing for him. Um, and that, that's what I think I, I like a book to do, whether it's about you know the, the 13th century or whether it's about the 27th century. You know, We want to be there and see things happening live in front of us and feel for them and not think, oh, this has already been done. This is all over. Um, so when people talk about historical fiction, usually they mean, okay, costume drama, something that's already sort of settled and done with. Um, in this case, it's not. Everything is up for grabs. No, in this case, the past cuts through the present like a buzzsaw. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like a, it's like your book is like a kind of a, uh, you're like a chainsaw-wielding madman <laughs> cutting oh, well, through the present. That's a different genre, I think, the chainsaw-wielding <laughs> madman. But, you know, I, I, hope, I hope it's a, a, a considered look at, at someone under... You know, a great, great deal of of, of stress, um, trying to do his best. Uh, well, absolutely. And what's amazing is how much we like Brand, and how invested we are as we see his choices lead to more and more dire outcomes. And uh, the orchestration of that is really wonderful. Did you, when you um, put this book together? Did you kind of know the the arc of how he how it was going to work and his own self consumption? No, not really, not really. I, I had to sort of really get into him and who he was, and you know, and and in in just in the writing day by day, you know, finding that backstory and, and finding you know where he's going forward, um, and and seeing them sort of dovetail and come together, and then making sense and then moving forward from that. So no, it was it was it was never. It was never very schematic there. Um, it, it's like, like, like Fitzgerald says of Gatsby. It's a book that that moves by mood. It progresses by mood, and it's, a, it's mm -hmm. as you as you know, it's a very very moody book. Absolutely. Well, that's a, that's an interesting thought of uh, that it progresses. This is a plot that consists of sequential moods. <laughs> Yeah, and surprises. Uh -huh. I, mean, I mean, there are things that surprise Brand that he doesn't know. He's just he hasn't foreseen them. Again, because he's new, because he's green, he can't see around or past, you know, all these actions. And even the very beginning in the first chapter of the book, mm -hmm. you know, where where he helps transport a wounded man, um, he doesn't know who the wounded man is. He doesn't know where he's taking him. He doesn't know what any of it means. But he's going to do it because he's been asked to do it by Asher, who is his contact, and by Ava who's his girl in a way. Um, and he trusts them enough that he will risk his life. You know, there, there in the very first chapter, he is risking his life by driving this you know, blood-spurting wounded man in his cab through the night. Um, and, and we go on from there, and it just gets, you know, the, 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 the level gets higher and higher and higher in terms of danger. Uh, one of the things that's interesting just in terms of the world you're creating 
you are talking about uh, getting the weapons. And I think that, again, in terms of the dissonance, as we read about how, what guns, how hard it is for them to get guns and what happens if they get caught with guns, I mean, all of this rubs up against what's going on in the world right now in a variety of ways. And I think what's interesting about that is that no matter how much uh, we don't change. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, human nature really does not change a whole lot. No, no, it doesn't. And it is, it is sort of terrifying and sad, uh, too. But there's also that, that great, what's the word for it? There's great thirst for freedom and that great thirst for self-governance and self-determination and, and saying, you know, no, you're not going to tell us what to do there that I think is admirable. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, Brand is becoming this very political creature and, and this very violent creature, but it's necessary for him. It's absolutely nece- necessary for him in the way that he sees himself as someone who's going to stand up for his people. Who is he going to fight for? Uh, what is he going to fight for and why? And that's very important to him. He's not fighting for something nebulous. He's not fighting for you know something that's that is finally an illusion. He's fighting for something that's and that historically did in fact happen: um, the independence, the 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 birth of Israel. I guess, in a sense, this is 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 a. A prequel to Exodus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I did, of course, have to go back and, and reread that, you know, just to get into it. And uh, yeah, even even I even watched the uh, the movie version with Paul Newman, you know, hanging out in the, in the little garden patio there at the, at the, at the King David Hotel. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah. And but it's it's funny that there's there's not a whole lot um, written about this particular time period before no. before forty eight. There's after forty eight, we have a fair amount. But right in this little gap, 44 through about 46, late 46, is not a whole lot. And it seemed to me the most interesting, the most fascinating and fertile time. It's really fraught. I have to ask, it seems to me you could have easily written a page-turning 800-page oh, book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Was there, did you write one and have no, to extract it? No. <laughs> no, no. No, I wanted, to keep it, I wanted to keep it tight, and I wanted to keep it within brand because that, that position of brand of the not knowing, mm-hmm. of being that Marlowe figure and that Patsy and trying to find his way there, that almost, in a way, a detective figure, right? Mm-hmm. He's trying to figure out what everybody is doing and how it's all going to fit together. And, of course, he figures it out too late <laughs> and, and becomes that classic noir guy, the Patsy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could have spread it out and, and given Ava her sections and Asher his sections and, you know, in, in all of them, their sections, and made that 800-pager, but I think it would have been a much less um, powerful book. I, I think when you're making choices in terms of point of view and in structure, you're always looking, how do I get my character's emotional world across to the reader in the most powerful way possible? And I, I thought this was it. I Well, I agree. It's a very intense book to read. Um at one point, you write that uh, you're talking about the the British laws and with the weapons. The law was clear, strict, and trumped up and bent against them from the very beginning of the struggle. And this points out something very interesting that we often forget, which is that we tend to think of the laws of our nation or almost any nation are kind of a platonic absolutes that have been somehow beamed onto sheets of paper in the state in the state houses or something we really often forget that they're written by humans for very specific purposes namely to serve themselves the best well, possible I, 
I, you know, I'm going to say in the last five or six years with, with all the NSA surveillance of, you know, email and <laughs> cell phones and things like that, I, I think we know that, you know, the laws are made by the government for the benefit of the government, not the people whatsoever. But in a case like this, they're, they're so heavily in favor of the force, the, the, the occupying military force to hold down whatever possible revolt there might be. And that does take the shape in this case of keeping guns away from people that would, you know, want revolution. And I think that happens everywhere. You have quite a bit of very interesting uh, tech in this book with regards to dynamite and galignite and TNT. <laughs> Did yes, you? Do you have some big pits in the back of your house out there? You know, the difference between TNT and dynamite. No, very, very important mm-hmm. um, throughout the book because you know it is it is an explosive situation. It's very important um, uh, for the the underground to have access, you know, to to the bomb making materials. I mean, bombs are and have been just historically the most effective weapon of terrorists um, and and freedom fighters in a way. Um, so it made sense that, that we'd really have to go through this. And the, the weapons training and the, the indoctrination that the people that went through for the Irgun was, was very, very rigorous and very, it was like a training camp in a way. Um, and we think of, you know, the Al-Qaeda type training camps where you see people like going on the, the monkey bars and things like that. You know, this was much, much different and, and, and much more intense. But for Brand, I, w- I wanted him to not be in that situation because I didn't want to go through that whole initiation sequence of things like that. So he has to come in the side door a bit being a member of the Haganah. Uh, we talked a little bit about the train robbery earlier, but I, I was just thinking, too, that that is for the various genres that get kind of culled into this noir and espionage novel, got some Western happening here. <laughs> and I think really right out of... And, uh, and of course, as they're robbing the train, they're dressed up as... Arabs. <laughs> Arabs. They, they, have, they have colored their skin, so they're kind of in, you know, oh, yeah. brown, brown face. It's, very, it's a very odd, very, very surreal moment. But of course... Historical, you know, just str- lifted straight up out of the history books. Um, and I thought, yeah, when I was writing, I was like, this is really, really odd there. And there's a moment that, where they're interrupted by an airplane, mm. which reminds us what century we're really in. Right. You know, this is, and, and what airplanes had, you know, wrought over the last five or six years, you know, to the whole world. I mean, the airplane is the, the bringer of destruction. Death from the skies. I love some of the. Uh, there are the aspects of him, how he's so romantic. And you just have this part, point where you realize, um, I, 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 he write, sentimental brand, heir to the romantics, lover of flyer, fireflies, and white knights. Why did he suddenly want to blow everything up? <laughs> Exactly. This exactly. is the romantic yeah. bomber. He went from this sort of this this lonely Baltic kind of moody moodiness to to really enjoying being involved in this struggle, to really sort of needing it, to 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 base his identity on it, and saying, you know, I, I want to be useful, and therefore let's do another action because that action worked, and I felt like I was doing something positive there. And he's in in a weird way, he's kind of just he has this, I guess, revolutionary fever. Mm. Uh, this is, in a sense, what they would call an origin story. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's it's how he how he turns and becomes this other person. I I, I think. Yeah. I think. Well, we'll we'll, you know, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens with Brand. <laughs> Are you going to bring him back? Have you? I don't think you've ever brought anybody back. Have you? Or I, well, I brought Emily back. Mm, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. For Wish You Were Here, I brought her back for for Emily alone. 
Um, and I think there are a couple characters that recur here and there, but um, probably not. Mm. I think I think he, you know, he's going to. You know, he came from, in a way, out of nowhere, and he sort of vanishes into nowhere. It's you know the man with no name you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. I I like the idea too, as you immerse us further in. Uh, his perception, there's one point where he's going home with Eva and he says, you know, this is another operation because they're trying to get her into his apartment, which is kind of verboten. And and they they, (laughs) they, sneak her into the apartment past the landlady. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, he's seen that as yet another operation and I think that that's such such a great telling detail uh, twist on his perception. Oh, that he's always on. He's Mm -hmm. always on that way. He's always always seeing what could go wrong. Right, yeah. Well, once once a revolutionary, always a revolutionary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, trust, trust no one. In, in that situation, he doesn't know, you know, whether to trust his landlady mm-hmm. uh, or Ava's landlady or, or anybody, or, Ash, or anybody. You know, even the people that are at the head of their new cell, mm-hmm. you know, that are brought in from the Irgun, he doesn't know whether they're setting them up or not, or why why they're why they're tasked with blowing this thing up or doing this particular action. Uh, and he's always questioning that. You know, is, is this all kind of a show? Um, are we being played? Right. And and two, going a little bit back in the story, he's questioning from the very beginning, do we really want to be blowing this up? There might be some, you know, there might be a school there. You know, or, or an old, it's going to knock out the power at the old folks' home. And I mean, I think... Yeah, why, looked, why are we doing these things? He's trying to figure, especially early on, why are we doing these things? Later on, he ditches some of those qualms. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and just says, well, we're going to do it. And I need to do it to prove that I am in. Right, because mm-hmm. he gets he gets on the outs a little bit there later in the book mm-hmm. with a cell, and he has to sort of show where his loyalties lie by doing things that he doesn't think are very very smart. And maybe <laughs> I one of the things too, in terms of plotting this book, it's really um, fascinating uh, to play with history and fit this into history. Uh, how much of a chore was that for you to to slot all this into history? Well, the chore was was what to leave out mm. because there was so much good stuff, mm. you know. And I knew the book didn't want to be four or five, six hundred pages long. I knew it had to be, you know, this this very sort of this build up to this very large climax there. Um, so it was a question of you know, what don't I key on? We mentioned earlier, I did, my thought was that this, I've seen this as a kind of the spiritual heir to Casablanca for the 21st century. Casablanca seems a little bit too sunny for our, <laughs> our oh, it's world. Pretty, Casablanca is pretty grim, as funny as it is. Yeah. Uh, has anybody thought of making this into a movie? This seems like it. Absolutely. Seems unnatural. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, right now, we're, we're we're sort of sending it around, um, but but we'll see. I mean, I think the great draw is not simply Bran, but Ava. I think Ava's just a, a wonderful character, right, to work with. Um, and Asher, of course, has his moments too. Mm-hmm. Um, and and several of the 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 actions are are on a grand scale. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly the the train robbery is and going out into the desert there, and and Bran taking the tourists around, and taking them to Bethlehem, right. you know, at Christmas time, or going to the Dead Sea <clears throat> with the scientists. Right. Um, um, there's lots of it seems very cinematic to me um, and in writing it I was thinking in certain scenes certainly the opening scene where he's waiting in line to go through the checkpoint recalls mm-hmm. touch of evil there's no there's no doubt that that's my little tip of the hat to Orson <laughs> Welles there um, so yeah it would be neat to see 
I think. Um, well, I like the 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 cinematic feel um, because you cut it the the beautiful cinematic uh, the the photograph parts by doing something that you can only do in a book, which is to get inside these people and get these really gnarly moral quandaries happening so that uh, readers find themselves like really as torn as the characters. You hope. I mean, you hope the reader's going to be right there along with the characters. But they also get to dance. Right? <laughs> they get they get to dance on the terrace underneath the stars, too. So, And then they go through the sort of the, the back alleys of, of the old city of Jerusalem at night. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a whole lot of atmosphere there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What's next? Do you know where you're going next? Uh, I, I'm, I'm working on a novel now that appears to be uh, about uh, Emily's husband, Henry. Oh, well. So this is a return to the Maxwell family, and this is going to be Henry's book, I think. Wow. Um, and the, and the, the first sentence is, uh, his mother named him Henry after her older brother, a chaplain killed in the Great War, as if he would take his place. Wow. And that kind of that sets his that sets <laughs> Henry's life off, you know, and then we'll see we'll see what happens with Henry after that. So you wrote that sentence and said, Now it's time to write the rest of the novel, eh? Yeah. Well, I, I've been thinking about Henry for a while because, you know, I've written a thousand pages about this family mm-hmm. and he's been dead throughout all of it. We we've never seen him alive. Uh, we've seen him in memory, maybe. Mm-hmm. We never heard him speak. We've never had a single thought of his on this family that seems to me really fascinating. And to be married to Emily, who is Really, it's sort of a fascinating, one-of-a-kind character. So I thought, you know, who who is this guy, Henry? You know, what do I know about him? And I just started thinking and sort of daydreaming about him. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll write his life story. And I'll write his, his, you know, his whole life there. Well, I really like this idea of, of following a family, uh, you know, because uh, families are so much the units that we live in. There's so much where we find our identity and so much that we carry our families with us everywhere. Well, and they're the people closest to us, mm-hmm. right? And, and how we deal with them really, I think, establishes who we are. Um, but Henry also has, has a much greater world as well as just that, that family life there. He, he mm-hmm. goes off and he fights in the Second World War. Um, he's an engineer who's involved with um, uh, putting together Westinghouse's um, nuclear uh, rocket engine for interplanetary travel. I mean, so he's, he's got a much larger scope as well, which he sees as his role as a man. Mm-hmm. So there's also that question of what is a man in America in, say, mid-century, 20th century, supposed to be? And, and how, are you, how do you live up to that? Or, or what happens if you feel you're not living up to that? And then, of course, there's the legacy of his namesake, mm-hmm. you know, and can he be a good man? Can he be a, a, a moral and, and holy Type man does he want to be that, and what does his war experience do to him in that, and what does what's his being this this World War II veteran and this kind of square figure establishment guy mean, raising two children during the sixties and seventies? So there's, there's a lot of sort of big cultural questions in there. I think. I think we'll see. You know, I, I've I've you know. I can't wait to tuck in, and I already right. just heard all I've read is the first sentence. <laughs> well, it's easy to talk about writing. It's hard to do it. I just need to sit down and you know grind it out. I've been speaking with Stuart Hernan, whose new book is City of Secrets. Thank you for joining me, Stuart. Thanks for having me back, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.